The Fantasy Sports Radio Network is now going for the green with Daily Roto. Welcome, everybody, to this week's edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto. I'm Drew Dinkmeyer. I'm going to be in the host chair this week alongside Colin Drew. Two-man booth breaking down the Valspar Championship. Uh, before we get into the Valspar Championship and kind of breaking down things there, uh, let's let's recap last week. But also, uh, Colin, let's talk a little bit about some of the new tools we've put on the site. I know you've been integral in trying to work uh, with Mike and the Data Golf guys and the tech team on building out some new tools for people to take advantage of. So let's talk a little bit about that. This- yeah, I think the betting tools have been one of the uh- – I guess I, I was excited about the product from a fantasy perspective, but the betting stuff has also been a, um underrated surprise and pleasant one. I know we've had the head-to-head tools out there for a while, the round matchups and the tournament matchups where you can kind of input the different uh, odds that are being offered and the different head-to-head matchups, and it will spit out the expected value of those bets. Um, we've also been working over the past couple of weeks to do the same thing for outrights and top 20 tools. So, basically takes the the top 20 odds and the win odds from data golf compares them to sportsbook bet 365 and identifies the expected value of making each of the individual bets uh so it's still a work in progress right now uh it's you know the the display will look a little more user-friendly moving forward but it's definitely a, a great resource and a fun one and uh, i think it's one of the things that makes our product unique golf guys has been the ability to basically have the fun of, of DFS golf continue throughout the weekend, whether it's uh, prepping yourself for weekend golf and using some of the strokes gain tools that they have to see, you know, round by round where players are adding value or whether it's to follow kind of win probabilities as the tournament is going on. And certainly uh, some of the things a lot of our members have been talking about in Slack during the, the you know, the beginning of each round or in the morning before the round start is kind of like, hey, who are you guys looking at in head to head bets and different things like that? So it's been fun to be able to have that capability to follow out uh, follow throughout the tournament. And we are continuing to build up some of those tools to help people both before the tournament and during the tournament um, if they're if they choose to make bets as well. So uh, with that, let's get into last week's recap, the WGC Mexico. It was one of my worst PGA DFS golf weeks ever. Uh, all of my takes, I would say, were pretty poor on uh, last week's episode. I predicted John Rahm is the winner, and uh, he made the third most birdies at the tournament, but was nowhere close to the leaderboard come Sunday. Started out uh, hot on Thursday. I thought things were moving in the right direction. It was another week where Justin Thomas, who we were uh, we were against last week, we didn't we didn't feel like he was a strong play. It was another week where Justin Thomas really shined on the weekend. Uh, ending up holding out on 18 uh, to eventually post a number that was tied by Phil Mickelson. They went into a playoff. Phil got off, uh, got, got finally, uh, you know, off the cusp with, with getting a win after a long, long time without a win on tour. And it was, uh, it was an interesting week on the whole because, you know, the no cut event gives players four rounds to be able to make up ground. Justin Thomas, if it was a cut event, might not have even made the cut because of uh, how, how poorly he started. 
Um, but to start with Justin Thomas, Colin, because one of the things we had talked about last week, one of the reasons we were not as high on Justin Thomas was an expectation that he and Dustin Johnson were going to carry similar ownership to guys like John Rahm and Tommy Fleetwood and Jordan Spieth. And we thought the discounts on John Rahm and Jordan Spieth were more valuable. The ownership did not end up that way at all. And so the question is now, you know, are, are players coming off wins? Uh, is there is there not only not a recency bias anymore in terms of PGA DFS and people gravitating towards those players, but is there actually a reverse recency bias in the ownership with some of these guys coming off wins? It's like that's the case, um, or at, at least to a certain degree, uh, because you know they're going to get a bump up in pricing uh, when they're coming off a win. You know they're probably going to get a bump up in the odds markets, which aligns with the DK pricing as well. And it seems like the ownership is holding flat or maybe even going down because people are trying not to chase the strong recent performance. I know we saw that with Ches Revy earlier this season, too, was it took like he'd been solid for so long, but it took like back to back really strong weeks before people jumped on him a little bit. And uh, it's it was a hard thing to figure out. No cut events are always tough for the ownership model, which in general wasn't great last week. Uh, Justin Thomas was one of the big misses, but there were a couple others. He was being heavily talked about. He's being kind of touted. Um, but how much of that was just people mentioning him because he had won the week before and not thinking about playing them is definitely something that I've been thinking a lot about. And uh, it seems like there might be a little bit of an edge, uh, you know, to, to staying on some of these players uh, an extra week uh, and not jumping off them just because they're priced up a little bit. Week off after uh, after getting off the shine and getting the big win last week. Phil has had a really interesting season, um, especially in the fact that, you know, it, it's unbelievable at his age to still be one of the more consistent top players on the PGA Tour. But it's also it's it's kind of amazing to me that he basically called his shot. He came into the year and simply said, look, if I can just be even with the field off the tee, I can make up a bunch of strokes everywhere else. And I just need to stop trying to make strokes up off the tee because I've never been able to do it. And here we are, and Phil is, is you know, throughout the, this portion of the season where he's racked up a bunch of top tens, been in contention seemingly every week, he's basically even with the field in the PGA Tour in terms of strokes, gains off the tee, but has been one of the best in approach shots, one of the best around the green, as he always is, one of the best putting, and finally got that monkey off his back in terms of uh, having not won in a long time, and then went out promptly right after the event and uh, was asked a question about whether he could get to 50 wins. This was Phil's 43rd and said, oh, of course I will. So, you know, Phil, it takes a couple of years to get one win. And immediately once he gets that one, he's got seven more in the bank in his mind. I love Phil. I mean, it's just it's so entertaining to watch him play, just all the stuff that he does and just the way he acts, too, obviously, is uh, really funny. I know even myself, I feel like as someone who tries not to be too biased, got a little bit biased with Phil in such a strong field. And I know in the past, you know, probably the past 18 months, we've played tons of Phil and he it has always been a really good DK scorer as far as birdie or better and, you know, DraftKings points, he was definitely good. But he was a guy that in the back of your mind, because he hadn't done it recently, you wonder whether or not he's going to be capable of competing in such a strong field or whether or not he can finish inside the top five or even win one of these events. And so when he was priced up like that, I think you saw the ownership come down. And it was definitely a week where I wasn't on him despite playing a ton of him um, historically. It makes me wonder, you know, the this like we, we see these examples a lot and you get, guys get the can't win narrative, but only so many people can't can win on the PJ Tour in a given year. And 
Sergio, you know, couldn't win a major until he did. And, you know, I think Paul Casey is another one of those guys that's interesting and uh, hasn't won in quite some time, uh, but has flashed on the leaderboard uh, countless weeks. And that's one of the guys that will be interesting this week because I don't think he has particularly strong course history either. Uh, so has the narrative going against them, doesn't have good course history, but I don't know. Could we see a surprise Paul Casey win one of these weeks? I think maybe we could. For those guys who uh, I was, I've been a big Henrik Stenson fan for a while, and that was kind of the big thing with Henrik. You know, he couldn't win a major, and then if you remember, I mean, beating Phil in that uh, in in the Open Championship in probably the most entertaining round of golf I've ever watched. Uh, that that final round where Phil and Henrik had really separated themselves from the rest of the field, and both guys were just throwing dart after dart after dart. Uh, Phil finishing off that win there at WGC Mexico. That was four straight events. He was within the top six, so incredible form from Phil. But we won't have him this week at Innisbrook uh, Resort, also known as the Copperhead, the Valspar Championship. An interesting course. When I think about Valspar and the championship there, the first thing that always comes to mind for me is ball striking and accuracy. Um, but in our notes here, you mentioned, Colin, that, you know, it's a par 71, over 7,300 yards. That's a long course. Uh, I believe 11th and par adjusted distance on tour has the second most narrow fairways on tour, has very small greens. Uh, this is a this is a difficult course. Yeah, definitely a really difficult course. And it's one that we've seen different types of guys do well on. I don't think that. So I think ignoring the longer players would probably be a mistake because it is sneakily long. Yeah, it's narrow. But uh, Tony Finau was the number one player in strokes gained tee to green at this event last year. He finished fifth, uh, but was lost strokes on the field with his putter that week. And you also saw guys like Patrick Cantlay, who's known more of an approach player, but can keep the, the ball in the fairway and has adequate distance. And uh, Jamie Lovemark was another guy who popped up as far as strokes gained to tee to green. He, he only finished 27th in the event because he lost uh, some five strokes to the field putting. But when you look at the tee to green, you see maybe it's not necessarily just an accuracy course. And the distance is definitely something that helps out. Um, obviously, you're going to need a hot putter with the, the course generally just being a, a challenging one. In the, in the low price range as not only a good DK scorer because you can rack up birdies, but also an accuracy player. Kyle Stanley, he withdrew from the event. Uh, he was in the original player pool on DraftKings at 7,200. Uh, so make sure to cross Kyle Stanley off of your list. If you are a subscriber at Daily Roto, we will make sure to continue to uh, update with alerts if any other withdrawals happen. But let's let's recap some of the course history first. I know we're, in general, not big course history buffs. It's not a huge input in our process in the baseline projections from Datagolf. You know, it is an input. It's an input that's weighted, uh, you know, about a half a percent uh, um, or excuse me, not half a percent, uh, 0.5 out of 10. Um, so, you know, 5% essentially of, of the uh, projection valuation from the baselines goes into course history. But players that have done well in the past, if you're thinking about like course fit types and trying to decipher what types of players have done well here in the past, uh, Jordan Spieth is four for four with a win and two top tens. Sergio is five for five in terms of cuts made. Henrik Stenson, three for three uh, inside the top 15 in all of those. Justin Rose, eight for nine. 
Matt Kuchar, 9 for 10 with two top 10s. Jason Duffner, 9 for 10 with one top 10. And most of those nine cuts made are all inside the top 30. A pretty good extended consistent course history here. Jim Furyk, 8 of 9 with a win, three top 10s. This, I mean, this to me was a prototypical Jim Furyk course back in the day. Tough scoring, narrow, uh, narrow requires accuracy, good long irons. Uh, we'll see if Jim Furyk is able to kind of get back into that form uh, post the wrist issues he's had in the past. Nick Watney, 10 for 10 in cut, cuts made. Charles Howell the third, who seemingly has great course history everywhere because he just makes a ton of cuts, 11 for 14 with four top 10s. And then one guy that I, I added to the list, Colin, because I was a little bit surprised because one of the things that one of the reasons I don't value course history a ton from a DFS perspective is that I find it is often priced in to guys on DraftKings, especially. They, you know, they tend to get priced into the odds, and the odds tend to shape the uh, the pricing methodology for DraftKings. And so, a guy that stood out to me is priced very differently than a lot of other players that I consider of similar skill level was Ryan Moore this week when I saw his price creep into the 9,000s. And the first thing I did as a result was I looked at course history. And if you look at the whole, if you zoom out on Ryan Moore's course history, not that great. I mean, he, he missed the cut four times from 2008 to 2013. But if you zoom in the last three years, 18, third, and fifth, uh, the last three years playing this course, Ryan Moore seems to have gotten that course history bump in terms of the pricing, but doesn't really have the type of long-term course history that you'd expect to earn that bump. Definitely an interesting one. The course history factors into the pricing, and then you know it's one of the things that gets talked about so much as well. And maybe now there's a, a starting to be a large contingent that's anti-course history, so it balances out a little bit. But I feel like you get the price bump on the course history and you get the ownership bump on the course history. So even if course history was a thing, it's kind of already priced into what everyone else is doing. So like there, there's something to be said about just dodging it for game theory reasons, if nothing else. But it definitely seems like the, the short-term course history is kind of what would be driving a lot of the pricing algorithms at DraftKings if Ryan Moore is getting priced up, uh, you know, in, in the 9,000 range, despite the season that he's had, which has been unspectacular. Sergio Stenson, Rose, Kucher, Duffner, Furick, Watney, Charles Howell III, Ryan Moore, Luke Donald is another guy that, you know, six or seven with four top sixes. Most of those were, you know, when Luke Donald was playing at, at a level that he's is very different from what he's played of late. The thing that stands out to me, and a lot of those guys are just world-class players, right? So they're great at everything. I mean, Jordan Spieth, Sergio Stenson, and this course certainly looks like one that's going to test you uh, throughout. But it does it does seem to me to look like a course that kind of supports at least my initial instincts, which is, you know, guys who are good ball strikers, like really good kind of accurate players, long iron players. Uh, Justin Rose, Sergio kind of fit that mold. Stenson has always fit that mold. Kucher's always been, you know, a pretty accurate player, not particularly long. Same with Jim Furyk. Uh, Charles Howell III can be a sneaky long, but kind of same thing. Um, is there any sort of course fit that you're emphasizing at all? I, I know for us, this is mostly used as like tiebreakers amongst tiers of players uh, that we're looking for. Is there, is there anything that you're uh, hanging on to when making decisions regarding course fit this week? Uh, most of the weeks, like you, you should be like evaluating like strokes gain tee to green. And maybe it's like slightly heavier on strokes gained approach versus off the tee this week. But I think generally, like, the, the solid course history guys are just really good golfers, right? And they're guys who make a lot of cuts most courses. I, if we went back and listed all our shows, I bet we've rattled off a bunch of those names at basically every course. And 
the field this this year is really strong too. I know this event doesn't doesn't always have such a like top end field, but there's a really deep field, and so I think that's throwing things off a little bit as well. The Valspar, which will make it you know more more challenging for these guys who have uh, accumulated really strong course history, perhaps in weaker fields in the past, to maintain that strong course history this year. Um, let's transition into before we get into some of the pricing tiers and kind of trying to break down plays amongst the different tiers. Let's kind of transition into talking a little bit about the different um, early look types of you know uh, lineup construction methodologies that we play around with uh, with the projections and the tools provided by Data Golf. I know we've had a long conversation about kind of how to how to best use the product and differences between two models because we do have two models that data golf uh provides us one is a fantasy scoring model which if you're a daily roto subscriber and a data golf subscriber that would be the uh the projections page when you just go to that you'll see projected scoring points and then uh there's also the finished probabilities model which if you go to the you know the finished probabilities tab you'll see uh throughout a win probability top three top five top 10 top 20 top 30 made cut probabilities and I know, Colin, you like to really leverage the finished probabilities in, in making a lot of your decisions. Um, that probability, that model uses long-term adjusted scoring averages as the primary input in that in that model. It is also the primary input in the fantasy scoring model, but we mix in some course history, we mix in some recent form there as well. Um, when you look through kind of building lineups this week and you look at that finished probability models, what what which of the finished probabilities are you using most likely? Are you looking at the top 10s? Are you looking at the top 20s? Are you looking at the made cup percentage? Uh, what What's your kind of approach to building lineups uh, for your three match or single entry, the types of GPPs you end up focusing on? It's all top 20s for me. That's that's really, except for if we're making bets on like outrights or something like that, or on the head-to-head stuff, I'll use those tools a lot. But as far as the probabilities, this is the top 20s for me that I lean on heavily. And there's a couple of reasons for that. I think the first thing is that in the super large field GPPs that DraftKings runs, whether it's the Millie Maker or any of these other like price points, $4, $8, $33, a lot of times what you're going to find you need is you need all six of your golfers inside the top 20. Um, maybe that's not always the case. Maybe if a guy does really strongly from a DK scoring perspective and finishes like 35th, you could be fine as far as having him for your six golfer. But for the most part, you're going to need guys inside the top 20. And guys who are inside the top 20 are de- generally going to score well that week. Um, maybe not, you know, there's definitely some nuance with DK scoring, but you got the place points and all those bonuses. So for me, like I think, in you know, you could leverage the made cut odds, which usually are going to align to top twenty. But uh, for cash games, maybe you'd want to use made cut. But for me, in tournaments, looking for the upside, and so the top twenty probabilities allow me to understand, um, you know, guys that are really maybe just drunk dead as far as finishing the top twenty. And a lot of times, I just won't even end up with those guys in my player pool. And on DK this year, a lot of times that has meant I don't play a single golfer below seven thousand dollars. It's rare that we find somebody with like a 15 or 20% chance to finish inside the top 20 below that range. So a lot of times I'm avoiding that entirely. The other thing I like about the probability is, is it allows me to, um, I, I think ownership is so important in golf. And so it allows me to have like a percentage of, you know, their probability to finish inside the top 20 that I can then compare to the ownership. And then I can look at two guys side by side in the same price range and try to evaluate how they're you know, going to make sense for a tournament play this week. So Rory and Jordan, I think, are two good examples. Um, early ownership projections 
have Jordan almost 25%, Rory maybe close to 10 So we objectively have Spieth as a better play per the probability model at 54% to T20 and Rory at 44% to T20. But if you were to then layer in their ownership and try to come up with a leverage score for tournaments, like Rory at that low ownership ends up with a leverage score of like around 36 and Spieth around 28. So that's a lot of the stuff that I'm doing to try to make uh, tournament decisions. That would tell me that Rory is probably a better play than Spieth in tournaments this week, just like holding the rest of your golfers equal. Oh man, Rory, this is a, this is, this is going to be a tough conversation all year long. It seems like, it seems like every, every week we're going to come in here and we're going to talk about Rory and the lower projected ownership and whether he makes sense in tournaments. And uh, I'm, I'm waiting for it to hit. It hasn't, it hasn't hit in a while. I uh, I think this is a good chance to segue into the top tier of golfers uh, at the very top of the price range on DraftKings. Uh, let's let's say ten thousand and up. We've got Justin Rose, uh, Henrik Stenson at the bottom of this tier, Sergio Garcia, Rory McIlroy, and Jordan Spieth. Jordan Spieth at the very top of this tier, just under twelve thousand. And you mentioned there, Colin, that from a tournament perspective, the low projected ownership early on associated with Rory McIlroy makes him as particularly a strong tournament pivot because when you look at at least early ownership projections, basically all the other guys in this tier are commanding 20-plus percent ownership. Uh, Rory, the only guy with a projected ownership well below that and below 10%. My my instincts uh, perhaps are poor as a GPP player here because my instincts are that of the of the four guys up top here, or excuse me, five guys up top here, um, Rory is the guy that is coming in with the most questionable form, I would say. And then also from a, from a course fit and a history perspective, um, perhaps, you know, he's never played, he's never played this event. Um, and when you think of, you know, the strengths associated with Rory, I think a lot about distance. Um, he is a very accurate driver of the golf ball. So the tight fairways here shouldn't particularly hurt him. Um, but you know, the around the green stuff with smaller greens has been an area that Rory has struggled of late. Um, are you putting all of that course fit and history aside and still attacking Rory and GPPs? Um, and then if you were to play cash games of this tier, does anyone stand out from you for this tier? Yeah, and I think for like smaller field uh, GPPs or three max types, like you don't have to worry or you, the reward of being right is not as great as it is in some of the large field stuff. So where you're talking like, a, I don't know, I haven't looked at all the tournaments this week, but 50K up top, like 100K up top, those type of tournaments for a $4, $8, or $33 buy-in, like the reward to being right is so great that I think that's where it makes sense to take on a ton of leverage. And the other other tournaments that are a little bit smaller, maybe you don't need quite as much leverage on the field and you can worry more about winning just on the T20 probabilities or putting together kind of the best overall rosters. Um, I think, like, objectively, Spieth seems like he's the best play. Uh, like, both the fantasy model and the probability model are going to align there. If you look at the recent strokes gain trends, he's hitting the ball really well from tee to green, and that uh, should set him up nicely at this course. Uh, and so I, th- I think, like, Spieth versus Rory, just on that alone, it seems like Spieth is definitely uh, playing better right now, rated higher in the models, and therefore a better play. I'm hoping that Rory's ownership will come up to like 15% by the time things swing through on Wednesday, and then I can just worry less about that piece of the conversation. I, when I watched Spieth the last few weeks, it's it's really remarkable 
how many short putts he's missing for a guy that, you know, historically has been so good with the putter. And when you look at some of our strokes gain trends tools that you've built with the data viz over at, at Daily Roto, you can see that he's consistently adding strokes on approach and around the green and tee to green. And then the, the putter has just not been there uh, for him over the course of, of the start of the year. And it feels a lot like me to, on a much lesser extent, you know, Rafa Cabrera Bayo, who for the last few weeks we had kind of been pounding at lower tier price tags. And if you tracked Rafa week over week, it was just green after green after green and then missed putt after missed putt after missed putt. And last week, the putter finally got going for Rafa Cabrera Bayo. I believe he was leading the field in strokes game putting our top two. I think Kevin Kisner might have been ahead of him uh, going into the final round. And Cabrera Bayo, you know, finished T third last week. The the T to green game was there. The putting eventually came around. And I feel like that's going to be the case with Spieth as well. The challenge is, you know, the last few weeks you've had a little bit of a pricing uh, discount for Spieth because he hasn't been the top dog in the field. This week there's no real pricing discount with Spieth at 11800 So I'm still torn between this tier. I think the pricing discounts from guys like Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson, and Sergio Garcia are pretty meaningful. My initial inclinations were that I was I was probably going to take a week off from Rory. Uh, we'll see where that is from an MME perspective and from a you know three max and, and single entry perspective. Um, but that was kind of my initial inclinations. And, you know, you have to make some decisions at the top. I usually spread out some of my risk. But ultimately, when there's, you know, five guys priced above 10,000, you can't have, you know, neutral weight field positions on all five. So Rory was going to be the guy who was going to kind of take a little bit of an underweight position. It's harder to do when that uh, ownership projection is, is sub 10 percent. Yeah, I, I definitely think that's true. Um, you know, the roster construction in general, as far as trying to maximize getting all of the golfers inside the top 20 would favor going with more of a balanced approach and perhaps bypassing everybody priced up near 11,000 and starting your roster with a Stenson, a Rose or a Casey type and really having six golfers, um, you know, which it feels more like a cash game build, but I think it can work for tournaments as well. Yeah, it's it's interesting because in the past we've seen like pretty consistently that the the top end guys you wanted like one top end guy to work through um, and then kind of attack the seven K ranges um, in tournaments that seem to be the best kind of upside ways to attack and I still think there's a lot of, of viability to that this week but in general the pricing across the different tiers uh, feels a little bit more balanced this week than than a lot of other weeks let's move kind of down to the next tier of golfers we'll go. Let's say, uh, you know, 9,000 and up and kind of hone in on those those plays specifically. There are five more golfers in this range with Gary Woodland at the bottom, Paul Casey at the top, and then Tiger Woods in the middle at 9,500. Uh, Tiger Woods priced right around Tony Finau at 9,400. The Ryan Moore price tag that we talked about earlier at 9,100. Woodland at 9,000. Paul Casey at 9,800. This is, you know, historically the last few weeks, it's been a little bit of a dead tier for us in a lot of ways because we've talked about emphasizing is some of the builds with at least one higher end guy and then being, you know, contrarian in the smaller field tournaments and mixing in kind of the the nine K's and the eight K's and kind of going for a more balanced approach. Um, Colin, I wanted to get your thoughts on this tier as a whole. And then specifically, what the heck do we do with Tiger Woods? Um, because from uh, any you know projection methodology perspective, you're going to have a really hard time coming up with a reasonable projection for Tiger Woods unless you're simply you know tying him to someone else from a skill perspective because the results have been so variant uh, the last few years compared to his long-term history. 
It seems like it's the type of thing for Tiger where you just have to make your own guess manually. Uh, it's hard. Like, no one who's doing a projection system that's rooted in data is going to be able to figure out the right way to handle it. Um, I think for, like, the way that DraftKings is pricing him and the way he's priced in the odds markets, it makes it easier for me to get away from just because you're not passing on, like... At 9,500, you take down a lot of risk as far as the amount of salary cap you're spending and risk as far as unknown and trying to guess on what type of manual adjustment to apply. So because of that, I'm less likely to play Tiger than I would if he was, you know, priced at like $8,000 and, you know, was 20% owned. I think that would be like a really challenging decision. I think I'm still likely to pass on Tiger. And part of that is just, uh, we, we talked briefly about it, but just Paul Casey seems like such a strong value in this range that... It's really easy for me to get up to Casey, and I know Casey's history here isn't super strong, but when we talked about all the types of guys who have done well here in the past, like there's no reason that he shouldn't be able to play well at this course. Yeah, I think I think Casey totally fits, and you know he's shown the type of form over the last few years that his pricing is earned and deserved to be com- competitive with guys like Justin Rose, Henrik Stenson, a little bit below the Sergio Garcia, Rory, Jordan Spieth tier in terms of pricing. I am struggling with Tiger because I've the challenge with Tiger is if you're playing DFS and trying to get exposure to Tiger Woods, you're almost never going to be in a plus EV spot unless you believe he is back to old Tiger. Because basically everybody wants Tiger to do well. So in general, his odds get inflated in Vegas books. That inflates his price tag a bit. And then on top of that, people in DFS want Tiger to do well as well. So people are going to play him. And you know, he did come in with a little bit lower ownership. Uh, the last event he played performed very well there. Um, I feel like that was such a strong performance, you know, finishing 12th two weeks ago that I feel like he's going to garner more ownership than our initial ownership projections even have at the, I think we're at like the eight to 10% mark, uh, early on. And then my concern is while I, while I want to play Tiger, I want to root for Tiger, I want to have something invest in Tiger as well, I'm really starting to stack odds up against me if I'm paying the high price tag and paying a little bit of an ownership inflation on that high price tag for Tiger. I really need to be right that he is back to the Tiger of old. And while I felt like I saw that kind of Tiger, uh, or saw flashes of it, you know, two weeks ago, we also saw him miss the cut. Uh, you know, three weeks ago at Genesis. So it's it's kind of hard to figure out how to to feel comfortable getting exposure to Tiger without making a little bit of a leap of faith. Um, but as I noted, like I think any projection system trying to evaluate Tiger is going to be a challenge right now just because of the, the vast disparity in results in the past. Um, Paul Casey, I agree, kind of stands out to me from this range. Um, Tony Finau and Gary Woodland are kind of interesting guys just because I think the ownership, uh, especially on Woodland, might come down after last week. He was he was really poor the first three rounds. He was one of my highest owned players. He he put together a really strong final fourth round um, and kind of you know salvaged a little bit. He scored well because he had two eagles on the week, um, so he wasn't a disaster from DFS perspective. But now he's nine K again. I got that fourteen hundred dollar price hike. Um, he looks like a guy that's an interesting kind of contrarian play to me and. I think people often associate Gary Woodland because of his length with doing better on, you know, longer courses and different stuff like that. Um, he has won here before. He won in 2011. Um, he has shown pretty good, you know, form of late, uh, after the, the waste management where he got the win. He's, he struggled a little bit, but, 
Um, in, in general, the, lo- the, the longer term of the recent form has been pretty good. Uh, is Woodland a guy you would consider in three max? I, I know he would probably be in an MME pool, but is, is he a guy that would be on your short list of plays this week? Um, it's going to depend where his ownership comes in. Unfortunately, I'd never have a good read on that until uh, like late in the day on Wednesday. I guess by Wednesday morning, it's usually in a pretty solid place. But that's going to come down to ownership for me. If he's like at micro-ownership where he is right now, then I definitely would consider trying to force him in. If he's going to come up in ownership and just be like an okay leverage play, then I, I don't think that he stands out as an incredible value. Um, just... Looking at some of the guys, like he just feels like he's maybe $800 too expensive. So look at like a Matt Kuchar or Louis Oosthuizen. Like we haven't got down there yet, but um, he feels like he belongs more in that range. So unless I'm getting an extreme ownership discount, I'll probably be off of him. I agree in general though. Like the the range for me, it's Casey, Finau, Woodland are the guys that I'm considering. You already covered more pretty thoroughly. It seems like he's overpriced. Maybe he'll be overowned um, and won't be a good play this week. And I think I'll probably end up like at this point. I'm kind of okay if I'm late to the Tiger Party. Be in on it. It, it would be. I mean, it's it's going to be a fun dance party and celebration party if Tiger breaks through. Uh, and and I kind of want a piece of it, but it's hard to find a way to justify it in DFS um, if you're a mathematically based player, as as I often am. Let's move down to the 8,000s uh, range, a little bit broader in terms of the number of names here at the top. You've got Adam Hadwin at 8,800, followed by Adam Scott at 8,700, Brandon Grace, Webb Simpson, Byung-Hung Ann, uh, Matthew Fitzpatrick, Matt Kuchar, Louis Oosthuizen, Kevin Na, and Cameron Smith round out the range. This is always an interesting range because sometimes depending on kind of where roster builds take you, sometimes the 9K range uh, gets a little bit left in terms of the ownership for more favorable plays in the 8K range. But this range as a whole, to me, has one player that I think is a little bit overpriced that's going to be popular in Adam Hadwin, uh, the past year's uh, the, the defending champ here, who had a huge final round on Sunday uh, to propel him into contention for, you know, a little bit uh, kind of periphery of contention uh, at the WGC. And then I feel like there's a lot of guys in the low eights who, you know, long term have, have played you know pretty well, have played well at this course. Uh, but are coming off kind of disappointing performances with a guy like Matt Kuchar. Also, um, a little bit to a lesser extent, Webb Simpson, he put together a solid fourth round to kind of rebound. Um, but I feel like a lot of the ownership in this tier, at least in terms of our early projections, are going to go to the combination of Adam Hadwin's recent form where he's played very well and being defending champ here. Broke in Tita Green last year, so he definitely ran really hot with the putter, as any winner usually does, but it's not like it was a complete fluke, and that was one of the things I wanted to look into when I pulled up the course history data viz was, you know, how did Hadwin win when some of those other names were flashing up there? Was he hitting the ball well, or was he just putting the lights out? And it seems like he was hitting the ball really well, and definitely putted the lights out too, but... Um, the ownership, if it does come, and, and you're right, because he finished so strongly and now has uh, gained strokes on approach, uh, two consecutive events up around five to seven strokes gained with approach, and that's definitely a stat that people are zeroing in on this week. So I think he will be popular. Uh, I, I have a feeling I'm going to end up like having a tiny bit of exposure, but um, probably be underweight on him just because I like some of these other names. And Adam Scott's one of the guys that... I think I'm definitely attracted to this week. Uh, seems like a really strong bet for the top 20. 
gained strokes both off the tee and on approach in three consecutive events uh, and now has had a little bit of a break. So it seems like he could set up well um, as a, a guy that, you know, is a below average putter, but if it's a ball striking week that he could be a, a guy that pops. You know, when you think about the guys that we reeled off in terms of the course history that have done well in the past, you know, guys like Henrik Stenson, Justin Rose, um, Matt Kuchar, Sergio, Adam Scott kind of has that tee to green game that you, you think of when you think of some of those top players in terms of long term tee to green. Obviously, you know, Scott went through a, a little bit of a rough patch last season. The guy I want to talk about is a guy that I, you know, was one of the weakest plays in the field last week and ultimately was one of my highest owned plays. So really, really cost me with Matt Kuchar. And Kuchar has been a guy that I've been playing, I, I feel like, in DFS golf for over five years. I mean, the guy just makes so many cuts. He does flash the upside. We talked last week about how, how well he had done in the majors last season with a bunch of top fives. Um, but Kuchar's game, at least early on this year, looks very different when you look at the strokes gain trends. Um, he has not added uh, strokes uh, on approach in all but basically one event, the Genesis, where you know he added meaningful strokes. Most of the other events, he was kind of neutral or losing strokes. Last week, he lost a ton of strokes putting, which we almost never see from Matt Kuchar. I think he lost like seven strokes uh, putting last week. He obviously, he's never been a guy who adds a ton of strokes off the tee, but he's been consistently losing strokes off the tee during the course of, of the early part of the season. Where do you come on the side of Matt Kuchar with the long-term form versus the recent inconsistency that was certainly magnified by last week's you know four-day events, especially if you invested in Matt Kuchar and having to follow four days of just frustrating performances on Shot Tracker? Yeah, it was definitely a very frustrating experience. I know we talked about him on the pod too, and like I, I felt like... There was a compelling case. Yeah, it to be was made definitely a very frustrating experience. Uh, I know we did talked have about that on the pod for no too, cut event. Like, had performed I, really I well like in majors last year, and so there, there was, was no a compelling case really to be made that, that Kuchar in a strong field uh, did have the well. upside for no cut and event. And then he had performed really well in majors so last year, and so there was that, no reason to really doubt that he could contend in a strong field if he was playing well. Into the underlying stats, you do wonder a little bit whether or not Kuchar was getting bailed out by a really strong struggle. Before last Digging week, into and then the underlying of stats, flipping do like wonder a little bit whether or not Kuchar was getting bailed out by a really negative spot before um, last week. And then instead of just flipping to like average, I guess, as far as playing him, I can't imagine I'll get away from it entirely at that price tag at 8200 I can't imagine I'll get away from him entirely at that price tag or standing out to me. Just given the long-term track record we have, both him, him and Louis Ustase about right there, that are guys that um, board are standing out to me. Couple guys from this range, and Ustase in part of balance build. I've been hitting the ball really well off the tee, which I think sets him up well here. The board, and when he's on, a couple guys from this range, and Ustase in his game strokes. I've been hitting the ball really well off the tee, which I think sets him up well here. And when he's on, like, you know, we know that he can contend. Those are two really challenging names this week, though. get kind of a reactionary move down into the single digits where I could feel like I was getting a little bit more leverage on the investment in terms of kind of betting on Kuchar bouncing back. If it kind of holds in that mid, you know, mid te mid teens, um, I'm not sure what I'm going to do. I'm really torn. He rates as one of our highest projected values um, because, you know, the long-term form is so, so strong. The more you push the recent form on the customizer, the more he'll kind of come down in projection. Um, but I was hoping for either a price discount or um, or a little bit of an ownership discount. And early on, it doesn't really look like I'm getting uh, much of either. Um, and then Louis is interesting because he just came out 
you know, shots firing, uh, uh, the opening round seven under, uh, early leader and then kind of faded. And I, I wonder if that'll, that, that'll wear on people, um, and can keep the ownership down. It looks like early ownership projections, um, are a little bit lighter on Louie than on Kuchar. Uh, Webb Simpson, another guy in this year that I'm fond of. I think some of the putting gains that Webb Simpson's made of this year are legitimate. The challenge is Webb might be one of the higher owned guys of this tier. Um, so trying to kind of sort through that. 8,500, I think is an okay price. It's not great. I generally don't like paying more for Webb than Kuchar, uh, but Webb, I think, has justified it in how he's played of late a little bit. Um, the 7K tier is where we usually focus a lot of our time and trying to kind of sort through all the values. There's a lot of names here, but just below that 8K and kind of in the conversation of like Louie and Kuchar as, as a roster spot I want to touch on was Shez Revi, who I would think from all the types of things we've talked about, you know, like consistent accuracy play, good approach play, uh, Shez Revi kind of fits that mold, and it looks like he's coming with a little bit of an ownership discount here, at least in the early projections, sub 10% from some of these other guys. And additionally, I think he's one of the guys, there's not too many guys that had a price discount. You know, this field theoretically should be weaker than the WGC field, right? So everybody who's playing this week that played last week should see their price increase a little bit because they're playing in a weaker field. And that's generally how the pricing methodology works. Ches Reeves' price didn't really move from last week. Um, him and Ross Fisher were the two guys I noticed in the 7K range that actually saw their prices come down while everyone else's prices is, is moving up. And that to me is a little bit of a buy signal. Yeah, and I definitely think, um, you know, one of the guys we had skipped over a little bit, but Brandon Grace was one of the guys that uh, seemed like a compelling play when comparing his top 20 odds to early ownership projections. And Chez is another one of those guys that seems like uh, he fits kind of the same mold. Uh, part of what makes him interesting is there are probably going to be popular pivots nearby. So like Jason Duffner, I imagine I'll carry heavy ownership this week. He has a good track record here and generally is known as a cut maker. And whenever one person soaks up a lot of that ownership, then you oftentimes can get low ownership for other guys at the same price. And um, I think holding all things equal, like I think Chez is in play, even if he carries modest ownership, but especially at a single digit ownership percent would be really interesting for tournaments. I think I think Chaz is interesting. And then I mentioned Ross Fisher as well. Another guy who you know, simply he was in the low eights last week. And he came down to the mid sevens and he's like the one guy that to me, you know, I didn't, I didn't kind of run it on all, on the whole field, but one of the guys that really stood out that had a price discount that was kind of meaningful here. Um, Fisher has been, you know, racking up pretty good results on the, the European tour through the course of the last season, um, has not played this event very much. He's played it twice. He missed the cut once. He finished in the sixties, uh, one of the time in 2010, I believe, a uh, little bit of a different player back then, but Fisher's another guy from this range that I have my eye on. Who are some of the guys, uh, in the seven thousands that have your attention Colin. don't normally play a ton but it seems like the the price is getting to the point where i probably will this week and we'll see where he's usually a popular guy so i, I don't trust the early low ownership projection that we have right now i think it'll come up but that's zach johnson so i think when we're talking about you know the the type of course that you want accuracy you know off the tee guys with adequate distance but not necessarily bombers um, in good approach games, I think Zach Johnson definitely profiles as a guy that can fit that mold. I know his last event was at the Waste Management, and he had a poor finish there. But before that, he had uh, been showing really good strokes gained with his approach, and I think that can set up well. He hasn't putted well over the last four events, and so I, th I think that's something that is a little bit of a bounce-back area and maybe partly why his uh, price has come down. So he's definitely one. 
The one I'm probably the most torn on, and I don't necessarily know what to do with it, is Steve Stricker, um, just because he plays such a small sample of events, um, and but he he generally has strong finishes in them. Even when he's in the majors, he generally has like adequate finishes. So I, I guess like we have him projected as a really strong value. You know, he has finished inside the top 35 of both events this year, but. He hasn't done a lot kind of beyond that, except at the John Deere Classic last season. Um, and so I guess I'm inclined to like just trust the projection with him and play some of them, but I want to cap my ownership percent just because there's so many other golfers in this range that it feels like crazy to load up entirely on one guy. Been doing well. He's been dominating the senior tour. He he won last week uh, at the at the senior tour, I believe. He's had a few uh, top finishes. Beat Jerry Kelly last week. Finished 14 under Jerry Kelly at 12 under. So he's been doing some work on the senior tour. He's kind of like you know mixing in both tours now that he's qualified for both. Um, so been doing some good work there. Um, other guys that are priced a little bit below Steve Stricker, Charles Howell the third, and Charlie Hoffman, two of our consistent favorites. Guys that just seem consistently underpriced relative to their long term uh, adjusted round scoring average in both. Uh, their ability to make cuts, their also ability to score. Uh, Charles Howell III has had, you know, pretty consistent strokes gained off the tee uh, in approach shot metrics. I was, I posted a, a little blurb in our, a little uh, picture in our Slack chat to premium subscribers about looking at his trends in the strokes gain tool uh, with the data viz. And I had 40% of Charles Howell at the Honda Classic, and the dude was gaining strokes everywhere but the putting greens and just and missed the cut. Uh, gave up a ton of strokes on the greens. And it was just so maddening uh, to have that to have that happen. I think Charles Howe bounces back. Interested to see because he's usually a guy that carries ownership. Interested to see if that ownership bounces back at all uh, coming at coming off of the miscut. And then one guy that I also uh, noticed that just looked a little bit underpriced to me relative to where we've seen him throughout the season this year. Keegan Bradley is down at seven thousand now, and when you think of like tee to green. <laughs> games i think of keegan bradley there's a lot to be lost on the putting green with keegan um but putting has a lot of variance to it i don't think he's going to carry much ownership at seven thousand. i think most of the ownership is going to funnel towards kind of the mid seven thousands i'm kind of interested in keegan this week in tournaments I did. I'm now, yeah, I'm now back like always Keegan. It's the the whole, I flipped the note card over and it's now always Keegan. After a year of never Keegan, it's now always Keegan. Yeah, the way DraftKings pricing is set up so far this year and even this week, I definitely find myself gravitating to the same, like you said, the 7K, mid 7K range you think is where people gravitate towards. That's where I kind of find myself gravitating towards. So like Brant Snedker and Russell Knox were two guys that drew interest to me. Um, you know, Knox specifically was really highly ranked in the world and had a struggling season last year, but has been really hitting the ball consistently. Um, I believe he's gained strokes off the tee in seven of his last eight events um, and the strokes gained tee to green this, over the same time period. Hasn't putted particularly well, but I think, uh, you know, that's something that we've talked about can vary a lot. And then Snez is finally starting to show a little bit of form and kind of if you look at the strokes gained trends, it seems like it's ramping up a little bit. He projects well um, in the probability model when you can kind of compare uh, what could be as low as like 4 or 5% ownership for those guys. And I think that's another reason not to fall in love with any one player in this range just because there's so many different guys. And you could get some really comparable pivots um, as far as the probabilities of finishing inside the top 20 at uh, fractions of the ownership. When I was just looking through the strokes gained trends and like thinking about course 
fit uh, that kind of stood out to me with recent form as well was Kevin Streelman. But it looks like he's going to be one of these guys that people kind of gravitate towards. I believe he's a past winner here. I think this is where he got that win where he rolled off like seven birdies in a row to finish around and ended up kind of uh, securing a clubhouse lead. Yeah, he's a 2013 winner here. Uh, it looks like he's going to command some ownership. His strokes gained uh, data of his stuff. The trends have been really good, just adding a lot of shots on approach. I think he's a pretty good play. Uh, but at those ownership levels, I will be looking for pivots in tournaments um, in, in the low sevens and mid sevens, because I, I really do think this is a pretty deep tier. Uh, guys like Austin Cook, Charles Schwartzel also kind of in this tier. It'll be interesting to see what kind of ownership um, those guys. Uh, Charles, a guy who's been routinely kind of priced around Louis stays in and um, those types of guys uh, in past years is now down a little bit. And then Austin Cook, a guy that was a darling early in the season in the, you know, consistently in the 8Ks, uh, looks to have fallen out of favor after a few weaker uh, results. But now down at 7,100 uh, looks like an interesting pivot as well to me. Yeah, MME builds in general, um, just because I am usually not building more than 20 teams in a given week. And I found myself definitely avoiding the range below 7,000 in my roster constructions and a lot of times avoiding the low 7,000s as well. I think, you know, we talked about leveraging the probabilities page and I've kind of drawn an arbitrary line at like, you know, 15 to 20% as far as top 20 probability. And a lot of times I can't find guys um, that are that cheap that have reasonable upside. Chris Kirk is one of those guys, I think, maybe at 21% um, to T20 that would be in the mix. But when you are building MME because you are kind of sprinkling in a bunch of the top golfers, have you been getting guys in this range or have you still just been kind of vacating the $6,000 range? I think last week I was more condensed because I had just a ton of John Rahm and I had so much of the upper sevens guys that I didn't have a lot of the low sevens, which, you know, might have gotten me some Sharma uh, that, that looked like it was working out really well for people. Um, this week, I will probably have a little bit more spread ownership and a little bit more closer to the top range with Jordan Spieth and uh, some Sergio as well that might gravitate me down towards the sevens. I think the the nine and eights are also a little bit stronger this week, whereas so much of the value the last few weeks was congregated in those high sevens that it kind of made the low sevens almost a dead zone for me and i think this week will be a little bit different because uh some of those guys that were in the high sevens are now kind of in the mid eights yeah and if you were going to dip down to the range um you know as far as punt plays i think that aaron wise is a guy who projects uh okay in the probability model around 15 percent, sort of the minimum threshold that i'm looking to dip to this week and i think ben martin is another guy that if you did want to grab, uh, like obviously if you want to grab Spieth, you're going to have to either dip past the entire 9K range or you're going to have to go down pretty low. And those were two of the guys that stood out for me. But because there's kind of a like a dearth of guys in general, it feels like more of a balanced week uh, for me for GPPs. Have you started to lean as far as whether or not you're going to go with like a balanced roster construction or more of a top heavy roster construction knowing that it is a tough event so that the scores might not be super low and the finish bonus points are going to matter. Yeah, I haven't quite gotten there to the roster construction uh, part of my week in terms of building out the MME lineups and whatnot. And ultimately, I think it'll be interesting to see basically a lot of the way it works for me is if I decide that I'm going to be overweight a lot of the 8K guys, then I naturally start to build a little bit more 
balanced rosters. Um, if I decide that I'm going to be a lot really overweight, a lot of the 7K guys, then I tend to build a little bit top heavier roster. So it kind of ultimately is a push and pull decision between the eights and the sevens. Right now, my early lean is that I'm a little bit higher on uh, the sevens than the eights and the nines. We'll see if that holds up. Uh, throughout the course of the week. But that's going to do it for this edition of Going for the Green with Daily Roto, covering the Valspar Championship. We will be back next week to cover uh, Bay Hill in Arnie's uh, Arnie's Invitational. It should be a, a really fun week ahead with this Valspar Championship. If you're not a subscriber to Daily Roto, make sure to check us out over at DailyRoto.com, leveraging all the great projections and tools, uh, both for DFS and betting purposes, provided by the, the guys at Data Golf that we have such a good relationship. So that'll do it for this week. For myself, Drew Dinkmar and Colin Drew, want to wish you guys the best of luck in all of your games this week. We'll catch you next week to cover the Arnold Palmer Invitational at Bay Hill.